Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) This episode was first broadcast in 2011. Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science nourish your mind. I'm Dr. Julianne Popple. On this edition, we'll feature protein power, penicillin, and parasites. But first up, we'll have a very special Diffusion 2011 Ig Nobel Prizes Roundup, live in the studio with Ian Wolfe and Therese Chen. It seems totally incredible to me now that everyone spent that evening as though it were just like any other. This year, the prestigious Nobel Prizes have caused quite a stir in the media. However, the lesser-known Ig Nobel Prizes have also stirred the pot as well. The annual Ig Nobel Prizes are awarded by the journal The The Annals of Improbable Research (laughs) to scientists who have conducted research that has both inspired the mind and tickled the funny bone. I'm joined in the studio by Ian Wolfe and Therese Chen to discuss the highlights from this year's Ig Nobel Prizes. The Ig Nobel Prize for Medicine was won by Mergem Tuck of the Netherlands and the UK, Deborah Trump of the Netherlands and Luck Wallop of Belgium, and jointly to Matthew Lewis, Peter Snyder and Robert Feldman of the USA, Robert Petrak, David Darby and Paul Murroff of Australia for demonstrating that people make better decisions about some kinds of things, but worse decisions about other kinds of things when they have a strong urge to urinate. The papers are Inhibitory Spillover, Increased Urination Urgency Facilitates Impulse Control in Unrelated Domains. The other one is The Effect of Acute Increase in Urge to Void on Cognitive Function in Healthy Adults. Yes, well, um, that's quite interesting. I found that when I'm busting to go to the loo that sometimes my decisions are very good and sometimes they're a little bit impaired. Well, what they're trying to say is that practicing keeping keeping yourself dry waiting before you go is practicing willpower. And this skill at willpower at holding off will go into other domains of your life so that willpower is like a muscle, and in this case, a particular muscle you can exercise. But there's a little bit of a problem is that if you let it go too much so that it's a painful urgency, then you'll make bad decisions. Right. So there's a critical threshold, like a P-urgency threshold, <laughs> upon which you make really good decisions or potentially really bad ones. Exactly, exactly. But this has got philosophical import because it means willpower isn't just something you're born with. It's something you can develop. And it means perhaps Freud had it right about toilet training, that it really does have an effect on your personality after all. Never thought about mm. it that way. <laughs> the ignobles they first make you laugh and then make you think. Now, the chemistry prize was one for determining the ideal density of airborne wasabi, pungent horseradish, to awaken sleeping people in case of a fire or other emergency, and for applying this knowledge to invent the wasabi alarm. Now, I hope that's finally calibrated, because I don't know about you guys, but I've had many an experience where I've overdosed myself on wasabi and had my sinuses exploding, which is not an experience I want to have upon waking in the morning. But you were awake. Yes, I was very, very awake. Painfully so. And you were aware that it was an emergency. 
Indeed. <laughs> so that sounds kind of functional to me if there's a US patent application and everything. I think it's very useful. It would be very useful for people where um, loud flash, uh, flashing lights or loud noises would cause a uh, good trigger a seizure. And I think it's very innovative in how they're trying to focus on other senses aside from sight or audio, I think. That's a very good point, Teresa. I hadn't thought about it that yeah. way. But you've got to make sure that, you know, it is calibrated so that people aren't going to be, you know, having their eyes irritated and blindly stumbling around <laughs> because you want them to be able to see their way to the exit. Yes, it wouldn't be so useful then. <laughs> and look, if you're sleeping there with your mouth open and there's a fire, what better way to inform you straight away? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Mm. The Psychology Prize. Now for the Psychology Prize. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. And what we have there is a sigh is in fact just a sigh. So the psychology ignoble was one for trying to understand why in everyday life people sigh. <sighs> and his paper is called Is a Sigh Just a Sigh? Sighs as emotional signals and responses to a difficult task. Now this is Carl Halvar Tegen of the University of Oslo in Norway. What he found is if you ask people about other people sighing, they'll say they think it's a sign of sadness. But if you ask people about their own sighs, they'll say, more. it's a bit more about frustration. So he gave people what, what he says in the title here is a difficult task. But what it doesn't say here, and I did find in the paper, is that difficult has in brackets impossible task, because he's a psychologist. <laughs> so he's given people a deliberately impossible task so he knows they're going to get frustrated because they can't possibly get it. And what he finds is they sigh when they give up on a project and then just before they start a new one. So it's not totally negative. It's about transitioning what you're doing. Ah, never thought about sighing that way. And next there's the Literature Prize. The Literature Prize went to John Perry of Stanford University for his theory of structured procrastination. This says, to be a high achiever, always work on something important, using it as a way to avoid doing something that's even more important. His paper's called How to Procrastinate and Still Get Things Done in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Now, I think that, that's a useful thing. I mean, all you have to do is, if you've got a goal that you need to achieve, is set an even more important goal and don't do it. Absolutely. That's how I got through my PhD. What did you put off? Oh, many things. It was a series of putting off other things in order to do other things, and the result was I finished. Sounds Pretty good. good to me. Mm. The Biology Prize. Now, this is one that uh, I believe you know more about than I do, Julianne. The Biology Prize is Daryl Gwynn of Canada, Australia, and the UK and the USA. Mm -hmm. David Rents of Australia and the USA for... For, um, I believe it was about beetles... A particular type of bupressed beetle, otherwise known as a jewel beetle, because they're lovely and pretty and shiny. Um, and these particular beetles were mating with broken beer bottles. Now, it's an interesting Ow. study. <laughs> yes. Um, well, you know, obviously probably not with the jagged bits, but we mm -hmm. won't go there too much. But um, it's an interesting... Daryl Gwynn, who's um, quite a prominent biologist who's published many papers on this topic of sexual selection, argued that um, that it was a, 
a way of illustrating that these these animals are quite sexually selective, a way of, you know, supporting the hypothesis of sexual selection. But I reckon if those male beetles are spending all their time um, making love with um, beer bottles rather than the female bupressed beetles, then I'm not sure if that supports that so strongly. But what it does hi- highlight, and this was something the author stress- stressed, was that uh, uh, there can be other knock-on effects from pollution that we may not be so immediately aware of. You throw away a beer bottle, you think nothing of it, but maybe the next generation of bupressed beetles won't come around. So beer and sex, it's still connected even for beetles. <laughs> yes, but um, definitely doesn't have a successful outcome in terms of reproduction. And the name of the paper is Beetles on the Bottle. Male Bupresteds Mistake Stubbies for Females. Now the physics prize is for determining why discus throwers become dizzy and why hammer throwers don't. It goes to Philippe Perrin, Cyril Perrault, Dominique Deverturn and Bruno Ragaru of France and Herman Kingmar of the Netherlands. Now, I had to look into this because, after all, they both spin around, right? If you're throwing a hammer or you're throwing a discus, you have to spin yourself around and around and around and then let go of something. Why should it be different? Makes sense. Mm. But it is different. And what they found is it's the head movements that are different. If you're throwing a hammer, you don't make the same head movements you make when you're throwing a discus because you have to look at your hand more when you're throwing a discus, and so you make different head movements, and it's the head movements that make you dizzy. So which makes you dizzy? Was it the discus or the hammer throw? The discus. Discus. I think I could manage to make myself dizzy either way, and possibly cause personal injury, so I stay well away. Now, the Peace Prize goes to Lithuania. Arturis Zuokas, the mayor of Vilnius in Lithuania, for demonstrating that the problem of illegally parked luxury cars can be solved by running them over with an armoured tank. And there's a video online that we can show you if you go to www.diffusionradio.com later in the week. Or just look up the Ig Nobel Prizes and the Ig Nobel Peace Prize. Bacteria are found almost everywhere in our environment. Some float around in the air. Some are in water or other liquids. Still others thrive in the soil. Some kinds are indispensable. In fact, the effects of bacteria are so important that life as we know it would be impossible without them. Most bacteria are friends of man. Some even produce chemicals called antibiotics that are used to help fight different diseases. There is not currently a penicillin shortage in Australia, but there was in 2011. You may be aware that Australian hospitals are currently experiencing a shortage of the antibiotic penicillin. Victoria Bond tracked down Professor Robert Boy, head of the clinical research team at the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance, as well as an infectious diseases specialist, to speak about the why and hows of the situation. So could you tell me, Professor Boy, why is there a penicillin shortage in Australia and what is penicillin routinely used for? Well, penicillin is the signature antibiotic that's been available for uh, 70 years and so for it suddenly not to be available is a a real problem because it remains important in treating many infections. Penicillin is manufactured outside of Australia, in the United States for example, and due to production problems uh, overseas there is now uh, a shortage of supply which affects the whole of Australia. And how long will this shortage last? 
hopefully not long. It's not entirely certain, but uh, it should be resolved within just a few months. It's interesting to reflect that when it was first developed, it was used to treat a, a policeman in Oxford in England, and the person who led the team was an Australian called uh, Howard Florey, who later won the Nobel Prize. And they were short on penicillin to begin with too because the manufacture back then was very crude. And what they used to do was to take the urine of patients that they treated and then uh, strain it and refine it and get the penicillin that was still active out of that urine and then reuse it. I don't advocate doing that right now, but I certainly advocate pushing for getting more supplies as soon as we can because this is an important antibiotic. And so if there is no penicillin in Australian hospitals, what do we do? Well, we do have some. And so what we have to do is ration it to those who really need it. We can't use it willy-nilly. It has to go under antibiotic stewardship. <clears throat> we need guardians to say, yes, it's appropriate to this patient or not. And, and that's a way of eking out what we've got left. So instead of penicillin, what are our treatment options? Well, the next group of antibiotics that were developed and related to penicillin were the cephalosporins. And they came along 15, 20 years later. And they are generally effective against the pathogens that penicillin covers, but not all. And so uh, instead of cephalosporins, you might need to use drugs that can kill anaerobes better than a cephalosporin, because penicillin is quite good at that. And so things like metronidazole might need to be used for uh, anaerobic infections. So essentially, we don't have a perfect replacement for penicillin, but we can approximate it with other drugs. Yes. It's not a cause for, for panic. It's a cause for concern. And we're acting uh, on the uh, shortage, I think, appropriately by introducing antibiotic stewardship. And this isn't the first time we've had drug shortages in Australia. Well, it's quite curious that within just a few weeks of the penicillin problem, uh, a number of other drugs have also become uh, in short supply, including drugs used in emergency medicine like adrenaline. And so we really need to look into our supply lines a little more carefully and whether we should be stockpiling a little more than we currently do. And also, is there any scope for uh, an increase in uh, local manufacture of uh, pharmaceuticals? Dr Boy, thank you very much. You're welcome. That was Victoria Bond speaking to Professor Robert Boy about pharmaceutical supply in Australia. Obesity is rapidly on the rise, nearly eclipsing smoking as the number one cause of preventable death. Recent research has shown that protein may be key to cutting down on obesity. I spoke to Professor Steve Simpson and Dr Alison Gosby from the University of Sydney about their work on the protein leverage hypothesis in humans. Protein leverage hypothesis is the idea that animals, including we humans, have a separate appetite for protein, separate from fat and carbohydrate, and that when these appetites compete, protein dominates. Now what this means is that if your diet is too dilute in protein because it has too high a concentration of fat and carbohydrates, you need to eat more in total to get your target level of protein. Professor Simpson and his colleagues have studied dietary selection in an extraordinary range of animals and the results have been compellingly consistent. Now, traditionally, most views of appetite regulation have concerned the counting of calories. And what we'd found was that animals actually don't count calories. They count separately their intake of these um, major macronutrients. We found time and again in omnivorous and herbivorous species 
that protein was the strongest of those three appetites and that if the animals were confined to diets which didn't allow them to simultaneously meet their protein and their total energy requirements, they would abandon regulation of energy and maintain protein more strongly. So that means that they would get obese on a low protein diet and they would potentially lose weight on a higher protein diet. But why is protein so important? Well, protein possesses nitrogen, and nitrogen isn't found in fats and carbohydrates, yet it's essential for building new tissues, for repairing our tissues, and for all replication and ultimately reproduction. Animals require nitrogen. So it's the primary source of nitrogen in our diet. Now what that means is there's clearly a cost to eating too little protein because you pay the price of insufficient growth, reproduction, repair and maintenance. Given the accumulating evidence of the importance of protein, Dr. Alison Gosby, Professor Simpson and colleagues decided to take a closer look at the effects of diluting protein in our diets. First what we had to do was we needed to design three different diets. So one was uh, these menus, they, although they were different in their protein to carbohydrate ratios, they needed to be similar in palatability, variety and also availability of the food. The reason for this is so that none of those factors could actually confound what was actually being eaten during the study. Once these diets were designed, we then tested them in the subjects. They were kept in-house for three lots of four-day periods where they were fed either the 10%, 15% or 25% protein diet. We then measured their food intake, so then we could tell what they're actually eating when the protein to carbohydrate ratio of their diet was changed. So what we found was when we diluted the percent protein from 15 down to 10%, we found that the subjects increased their daily energy intake by about 12%. So what they were doing was they were eating almost the same amount of protein as they were eating on a 15% protein diet. But they actually, they had to do this, they had to increase their carbohydrate and fat intake, which increased their total energy intake. The study examined the responses of lean participants only. I asked Dr Gosby whether she would expect similar responses with obese humans. We would expect to see a same very strong appetite for protein, so protein would be prioritised. However, in these individuals, they've often developed insulin resistance, and this kind of state actually increases their requirement for protein, which actually means that they end up on a kind of a vicious cycle where they require more protein and to do this, to get the more protein but to eat the same amount of energy they would need to increase their percent protein of the diet. However, if they stay on the same percent protein diet as they typically would, they would be over consuming even more, which would then lead to even more weight gain. And the moral of the story? The most important message coming from this study is that it's not necessarily that we need to increase our protein intake, it's it's more that we need to be aware that we don't dilute our protein intake. So you need to avoid eating carbohydrate and fat beyond your energy requirements. There may also be a cost to eating too much protein. If you force animals to overconsume protein in their diet, they suffer consequences such as reduced longevity. And it, it may be that there's a fundamental link between protein its amino acid constituents and the pathways that control aging, growth and risk of cancer and other diseases. Now in humans we don't yet know whether there's a cost to eating too much protein but by reference to our other animal studies there may well be. Getting the right amount of protein in your diet seems pretty critical. However, good nutrition doesn't come cheaply. If you separately cost macronutrients, you can see that protein is more expensive than fat, and fat in turn is more expensive than carbohydrates. Now that provides an economic imperative 
both on consumers and may therefore help explain why obesity is particularly prevalent amongst the less well-off. Uh, and it also adds an economic pressure on, on the producers of food, both for our food animals and also for us. So there's been a move towards diluting expensive protein with cheap fat and carbohydrate in processed foods. As we often hear, the key to good eating seems to be in finding the right balance of nutrients. Affording that balance may be the biggest challenge. That was Professor Steve Simpson and Dr Alison Gosby from the University of Sydney talking about the leveraging power of protein in our diet. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up. James Bourne introduces the cat parasites that alter your mind, and then Ian Wolfe reports on which pathways in your brain the parasites use to control you. Toxoplasma gondii is a protozoan parasite of the phylum Apicomplexa. The suicide rats and you know, the mind control and sort of basically it's a bit like the X-Files, you know, that these things can live in your brain and dictate how you behave. Pet talk this morning, toxoplasmosis, did I say right, it correctly? Very good, very good. I had to practice that. So what are these little wrigglies? These are the toxoplasma tachyzoites, which is the infective stage of the parasite. All kinds of grazing animals accidentally ingest the eggs of toxoplasma. Like rats, the parasite lodges in the brain and muscle where it can be passed to any predator, including us. Its final host is the cat. Around a third of us are infected with a brain parasite called Toxoplasma gondii, and this single-celled clitor of its host. Essentially, humans can become infected by gondii through contact with soil contaminated with cat feces or through eating infected meat. Now, these infections are quite common, and up to a third of the world may carry the parasite. In the first few weeks of the infection, the parasite can cause flu-like symptoms, and afterwards creates cysts in blood cells and neurons, which can persist for an entire lifetime without any obvious effects. And it can have a subtler effect on hosts. So the parasite clearly changes the behaviour of mice, for example, who become fatally drawn to the scent of cats. Um, this increases the odds that the parasite will actually end up in the cat, which is the only animal in which the parasite can reproduce. There's also some evidence that it does similar mind tricks in humans. So some studies have actually shown that we have subtle personality changes. Illnesses like schizophrenia, anxiety and bipolar can also apparently be caused by the parasite. And there's also been a study that has shown that if you have the infection, you are two and a half times as likely to be involved in an accident in your car. Predator cat odours activate sexual arousal pathways in brains of Toxoplasma gondii infected rats. This is new research published in the Public Library of Science by researchers at Stanford University and Nanyang University. The parasite makes use of the fact that the pathways of fear and desire are physically close together in the brain. Toxoplasma makes its host horny at the scent of cat urine. It gets right down into the amygdala and rewires pathways of sexual attraction so they respond to stimuli they normally run away from. As the cat generally eats the infected animal before the rat has a chance to ask her out, it's left for a future study to find out what the rats would have done with the cat if the cat hadn't eaten it first. 
When infected cats, sorry, when infected rats were exposed to the scent of cat urine, their brain activity spiked in both the sexual and running away circuits. The parasite infection doesn't make it so smorphialous, it's just that whatever fear they experienced was overwhelmed by sheer, hot, interspecies horniness. Writer Peter Watts just can't believe that all these politicians caught in risky sex were really that stupid. There must have been an edge of fear to every dalliance, some inner voice warning of sudden death around the corner. Maybe even that added to the thrill. But the fact is, fear is only one driver. And here in Darwin's universe, the brazen frequently leave more genes to the next generation than the overly cautious. A long life gets you nowhere if it's chased. A short life's no disadvantage if you leave a thousand children behind. Sex trumps survival. We see it in rats. We see it in politicians. Toxoplasma didn't invent that inequality, but it sure knows how to make the most of it. If I ever decide to run for office, remind me to get my amygdala checked for cysts. Researchers Patrick House, AJ Vias, and Robert Sapolsky, in writing this paper, have also told us that you culture toxoplasma on fibroblast monolayers grown from human foreskins. Although I didn't really need to know that. And now... A cat lady from eHarmony. I really love cats. And I just want to hug all of them, but I can't because that's crazy. I can't hug every cat. I'm sorry. I'm thinking about cats again. I just, I think about how many don't have a home and how I should have them. And I want them in a basket. And I want little bow ties. I want them to be on a rainbow and just in my bed. And I just want a house full of them. And I just want to still roll around. Thanks, James Bourne, Ian Wolf, and a very enthusiastic cat lady for making the enjoyment of cute kitties slightly uncomfortable. And perhaps could explain my recent, disturb, rather disturbingly, attraction to my neighbour's cat. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Ian Wolfe, Therese Chen, Victoria Bond and James Bourne. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Dr Julianne Popple. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvellous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man, knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits, photography, collecting, 
Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.